Hi everyone, I'm David Green, Managing Partner for the Insight 222 People Analytics Programme. Welcome to Episode 4 of Series 14 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. AT&T is the world's largest telecommunications company and is in the midst of a major business and organisational transformation. As part of this, AT&T is evolving its performance culture towards a more agile approach based on the notion of kind candor. My guest on this week's episode, Melissa Corwin, is the Vice President for Employee Experience, and she is overseeing the development of the new performance culture. As you'll hear, this is an impressive, well-coordinated strategy that is supported across the organization and tied closely to improving outcomes for the business, employees, and AT&T's customers. In our conversation, Melissa and I discuss the impact of AT&T's business transformation on culture and behaviours. We look at the key components of the new performance culture, and we discuss the importance of kind candour, and we look at the expected outcomes of the new performance culture. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in or involved in the role of performance culture and performance management in business transformation. So that's business leaders, chief HR officers, and anyone in a strategy, people analytics, culture, employee experience, or HR business partner role. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Quantum Workplace. Success starts with your people. When employees succeed, your business succeeds. Quantum Workplace equips organizations with the most reliable solutions for employee, team, and business success. Their employee engagement and performance management tools help organizations listen to understand and leverage their talent to move business forward. Quantum Workplace's intuitive platform includes employee surveys, goals, recognition, feedback, one-on-one meetings, and robust people intelligence and analytics. Quantum Workplace has partnered with thousands of best places to work on their talent strategies, including Fossil, DSW, Panera, Redfin, Getty Images, BKD, and more. To learn more, visit www.quantumworkplace.com forward slash digital HR. That's www.quantumworkplace.com forward slash digital HR. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Melissa Corwin, Vice President for Employee Experience at AT&T to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Melissa. It's great to have you on as a guest. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to your background and your role at AT&T? Well, hi, David. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and share some of the work that AT&T has been doing. So by way of background and employee experience, many might be wondering what exactly does that entail? So I've got a couple of things in my area of responsibility. I lead our talent acquisition organization that includes high-volume staffing. So think of our call centers and our retail stores international staffing and college recruiting. I've also got our organizational development and assessment team. That includes things like performance development, our employee listening strategy around surveys, and then how we assess incoming talent and talent as it moves across the business. And then also have culture, employee experience, and employee value proposition. So a lot more than the the, the title would suggest. But, but quite good because I suppose that kind of links together all the areas of employee experience across the life cycle, I guess. Yeah, so I think there's some great synergy, particularly with talent attraction, as we think about the experience that we provide to employees and how we attract in-demand talent. Really important that that work sits together. But I could argue you could fit employee experience and culture in a lot of different places. 
really important that there's strong connective tissue across the HR organization, as well as the operational team. Culture is as much about how you operate day to day as it is the people practices. Yeah, completely agree. Well, let's let's start with this. As I said, great to have you on the show. Let, let's start by setting the scene of business transformation at AT and T. You know, how is the business evolving, and what is the impact on the on the company's culture model? Yeah, great question. So, I think the important piece of our culture transformation is that it was considered integral to our overall business transformation. So, about two years ago, we embarked on a transformation activity holistically. And that was really rooted in a couple of things. First, we're in an industry, in particular within our communications company, an industry full of disruption and saturation, right? So if you think about uh, broadband fiber or you think about the mobility space, um, we had a need to be able to differentiate ourselves and to get really crisp in how we go to market. So this was born about a larger business transformation. We also knew that we needed to grow and strengthen our customer relationships. And to be successful in transforming the business and being competitive in the market and growing these customer relationships, we knew that we needed to change how we worked together internally. Yeah, and, it is, and as you said, the two are so related. You can't change the business without, you know, the, without the employees because ultimately the business transformation won't be successful if, if, you're, if your people aren't ready to, to, to deliver on that. Yeah, and I think fundamentally, when we go back to talk about culture, it's interesting when we first started talking about culture across the business, it feels really like a really squishy thing, like that you're talking yeah. about, you know, baristas and dry cleaning, right? We're not talking about perks. So to fundamentally think about how we work together and what our behavioral expectations are, and then how do we reset those? You know, we're a 140-year-old company. We're deeply ingrained into how we behave. So we need to really affect what behaviors have really served us well yeah. and what has gotten in the way of our success. Because for any business transformation to be successful and to be sustainable, we can't continue to operate the exact same way. And you can't have this be a top-down driven approach where only the leaders are behaving differently, but we have 200,000 other employees you know, behaving under historical norms. So we had the opportunity to go out and explicitly state what we expected around behavior and acknowledge that it was aspirational, right? Um, as uh, our CEO of the communications company, Jeff McElfresh, said, we're planting a tree, not a flower. This, this doesn't bear immediate fruit, right? This is going to take sustained work. And you, you said it can't be a top-down approach. I mean, how did you in, involve employees in, in this, this transformation, I guess, around, around culture and, and behaviors? Yeah, so great question. We began by um, looking at a lot of the survey data that we had historically. We've run all-employee surveys almost annually um, for several years, and we had a lot of data from that. Now, in all transparency, we haven't always been the best at acting on the data that we received. Yeah. So we start by going through that data and looking at what are the behaviors that employees are saying make us a place that's great to work um, and that is productive, and what are the behaviors that are getting in our way? And then we took that and filtered it down and then conducted a series of focus groups across the business, all the way from our executive leadership team through, you know, first-line employees that are customer-facing in the business, whether that's retail sales consultants or call center agents, and got feedback from them as well. And then we distilled all those behaviors down into pillars and then supporting behaviors underneath. Like, thematically, this is what we're hearing, and this is what we're hearing around behaviors. 
And what was most successful for us as we went through this process is it was easier to engage with employees on stating what needed to stop being done versus what the behavior looks like in success. So saying things like, we're going to put customers first. And this means we do not serve internal constituencies first. Yeah. Or we're going to be accountable. And this means we do not push decisions up, down, or across the organization to share accountability. We're going to own it individually. So stating it both in the what it means from a positive long-term perspective, from an aspirational perspective, and then explicitly stating what it means that we stop doing was really key to us as we developed the model. Yeah, it makes it real, I guess, for, for, for people, people, which ultimately is you need to do that if you want to change behaviours or, or uh, reinforce the behaviours that, that lead to success. Yeah, and I also think it's kind of in, inherent human nature, right? You, you know what you don't like or what's getting in your way, but you're not sure how to express what that means you know, from the positive lens of what you'd like to see. So we kind of backed into the positive behaviours from knowing what we wanted to stop. And of course, I mean, a great thing about that by analyzing that survey data looking at the focus groups obviously you've got people that are close to customers interacting with them every day they've probably got a better understanding of the behaviors that lead to, to success than the people sitting in, in in a headquarter office or, or or you know senior leaders frankly yeah absolutely I, what's important to us as we went through this process is to listen to the voice of those closest to the customer and we've maintained that focus and so how do we break down silos and barriers and hierarchy and bureaucracy so that we can truly enable and empower those that are closest to our customers to serve our customers first? And and obviously, being able to, to look at the data and analyze that data is so important, um, you know, from thinking from a for people analytics perspective. But then, as you said, they're making that real for people so they can act on it. So really good example. We may come back to people analytics at some point. You might have noticed it's a bit of a favorite topic. Um, so <laughs> how is the culture change um, impacting the performance culture at AT&T? So I think that you've, there's been a bit of a shift around there as well, hasn't there? Yeah, so let me start by kind of setting the stage for how we took the model that I just mentioned and articulated it to employees. And because for us to get crisp around that was really important to us. We took the 16 behaviors that we identified through that exercise and, and the data that you just mentioned, and we broke those down to four pillars. Serve customers first, move faster, act boldly, and win is one. So you know, to be straightforward, serve customers first means we don't put internal constituents in front of the customer. We put their needs first. We serve them first in everything that we do. Moving faster, that was really about stepping up to speed up, you know, owning our decisions and accelerating our actions. And being bold, being willing to take risks, um, smart risks to move the business forward. And then finally, for win is one, it was important to us to address internal competition and that it was important that we succeed holistically as a team, not as separating business units or individuals. So step one, we, we put that forward and we put the 16 behaviors forward, which included things like customer centricity, empathy, empowerment, really important to our discussion today, candor and challenging, and yes. that employees knew exactly what was expected. And then we took our HR practices and married it up to this. Where were we supporting these behaviors and our practices? And where did we have an opportunity to reinforce, embed, and enable in our practices? And one of the practices that we identified that we needed to update was performance development. And so historically, like many companies, we've been 
evaluating what's the right performance development model. And there are tons out there, all the way from like abandon the performance development model and no longer do annual reviews. And in the name of simplicity, about three or four years ago, that's exactly what we did. We started to remove elements of performance development with the intention that we simplify it. Yeah. I think our lesson learned is moving from expected behavior to recommended behavior didn't lead to the results we'd hoped, and that it didn't simplify it for employees. They burned a lot of calories trying to figure out, well, what's expected of me and how am I doing and what's going on? And so we might have simplified it for our supervisors, but we didn't simplify it for the employee base at large. So part of it was recognizing we got it wrong. And that we needed to go back and instill some rigor in the process. Uh, particularly in our world, we know what gets measured gets managed, right? Yeah. So if you're not measuring performance development, you know, unless you've got a really robust, deeply steeped culture of candor and feedback, you're likely missing the mark. Going back and reset expectations for what development looks like. And in our world, that included... We set explicit expectations on how frequently supervisors should be meeting with their employees and having coaching and development conversations. And we set that as a minimum of monthly, um, which we think is a bar that we can raise over time. We also set clear expectations about career development and how often those conversations should be occurring. And we said that needs to happen at a minimum on an annual basis. And we shifted our rating process to capture two ratings. Um, and this is some of, you know, a little bit of going back to the future because historically prior to what we thought was simplification, we had this to measure both the what and the how, right? Results and behaviors. Yeah. And historically, though, we had blended those to arrive at an overall rating to inform things like talent review and compensation. We think that with that, we diluted a lot of the how, right? Because if two of those things tied, the tie always went to results instead of behaviors. Um, and in that environment, you can recognize some pretty talented tyrants, right, if that's what you choose to do. So we can now keep two separate ratings, one for results, one for behaviors, both individually inform compensation and talent development practices. And then really key to change in, in our culture was around feedback. And we implemented expectations around both peer feedback and supervisor feedback. So no less um, then twice a year, employees are expected to reach out to at least five colleagues and get feedback. And then that feedback is shared both with the peer and with the, the next level leader to inform development conversations. And so we have a more holistic view of how we're developing employees. And if we're meeting these commitments around conversations and development, uh, we also have a supervisor feedback session. Those occur twice a year where all direct reports are invited to provide feedback about their supervisor's effectiveness and guided through prompts. And that's how we're inspecting if this behavior is happening. Great. No, it's pretty great to get into some of the details. I know listeners love to hear hear some of that. A um, couple of things. So, so firstly, what's been reaction, I guess, from 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 work the workforce? And, and, and then... As part of that, how important has it been that that shift towards this, this new performance culture is supported across the organization? And how do you ensure that support? Yeah, great question. I think, um, and no surprise, it was met with some concern by supervisors who said, wait, you, you know, you want me to have 
12 one-on-one conversations a year and a mid-year check-in and an end-of-year review um, and get this feedback and then respond to it, I'm, I'm busy, right? Like, I've got all these operational objectives that I need to achieve. Is this realistic? And, and if you break it all down, we think it's probably about eight hours of activity, you know, eight to 12 hours activity per employee. And we think that that's absolutely realistic. And to speak to your point about leadership support, that very question was asked to our CEO as, you know, he met with the entire organization company-wide and shared, you know, this change along with other HR practices um, that were changing. And he was asked that question from the audience. Is this really realistic? And his answer was an unqualified yes. It's not only realistic, it's your job. Yeah. And I think, Uh, For anyone else undergoing this change, really important that the leadership team appreciate, believe that this is critical to elevating performance of the enterprise and that it's an operational imperative. It's not an HR practice. Yeah, because I guess if it comes from HR, you know, as as much as we're becoming far more important as a function, I think it's pretty fair and that's definitely been shown over the last sort of 12 to 15 months it has to come from leadership to, to actually land, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, I think, you know, otherwise we don't talk to employees about any other operational objective in a silo. Or we don't, it's not just the finance organization that talks about financial commitments that need to be made, right? It's, it's the leadership team collectively that that is talking about why those financial commitments are important. So it's equally important on people initiatives that it can't just be HR, right? That's the mouthpiece of why something's important because then it feels disconnected from the other operational objectives. Yeah. And actually, when you break it down, it's about eight to 12 hours of activity per employee. That's very helpful because actually when people, that hopefully that helps people realise, oh, Amy, it's not as much as I thought. And actually raising the performance of the organisation is actually really important, both from a financial perspective, but also for, for employee development as well. Yeah, I also think it helps supervisors shift their mindset on where they spend their time. I don't think AT&T is unique in that most of our supervisors are employees who are promoted from individual contributor roles. Yeah. And that's a hard break to make, right? It's it's really comforting, right? When you can look at the end of the day and you've checked these boxes or you've sent these things or you've written these documents or, you know, you've closed these sales. It feels nice and tangible. Amplifying others' performance is a less tangible work product yep. you know, at the end of every workday. So it's important to reset that your job is not just to to move things down the line. That Then we're only as strong as your individual capability. Your job is to amplify the capability of others so that the 12 people reporting to you achieve more. And that's far greater than what you could achieve by leaning in harder to individual work today. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Can you... Can you, I mean, you've talked about some, can you tell us a bit more about some of the key components of the of the new performance culture? Yeah, so one of the things that we did was move to a tool that enabled all of this work to be done together so that supervisors and employees can collaborate on one-on-one agendas within the tool. And they can also, you can solicit peer feedback in the tool. You can do that either, you know, in an attributed model where, you know, David, you and I work together on a project and immediately following it, in that context, I can send you a template seeking feedback on how I contributed in the project. 
and what one thing I could do better or what one thing I could do that would make me even more effective. Yeah. Or I can, I can freeform the questions, right? If there's something that unique that I want to know. And then when you respond, it comes back in the tool, comes directly to me, also goes um, with a notification to my supervisor. I can then attach that feedback to an upcoming one-on-one for discussion as well. And also within the tool, that's where we do the mid-year check-ins, the interview reviews, and the supervisor feedback so that all of it's a connected ecosystem. Now, with that, though, we heard from employees and supervisors who said, hey, wait, I already use X tool for my one-on-ones. And for us, the tooling wasn't as important. Like, the mandatory components of the tooling was, you need to do your mid-year check-in here. You need to do your end-of-year review here. You need to establish your initial commitment here. But if you want to go seek feedback the old-fashioned way, right, pick up the phone and call David and find out how you did and note it and attach those notes to a one-on-one, great. What we care about is the activity is happening. We're less concerned with which tool is happening in. And the way we'll know if it's happening is, are you attaching this to your mid-year? Is your supervisor talking with you about the feedback that you received from your peers? Yeah. And where we've made supervisor expectations around one-on-ones, we're asking that directly in the supervisor effectiveness feedback prompt. How frequent are your one-on-ones? So we're measuring outcomes versus measuring tool utilization. Now, of course, as an HR organization, we're watching tool utilization so we can understand effectiveness, but that's not what we're drawing on. That's the most important thing. To you know, Tool compliance is not what's important here. No. Behavior is what we're inspecting. Yes, you can also test that in your employee surveys as well. You can ask the questions that are related to the performance culture and the feedback. And then the great thing, obviously, is you've got that data within those tools that you can bring together and get some aggregate insights, I guess, and start linking, I don't know, supervisors that regularly check in with their employees to performance, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So once a year, we have a complete survey, census survey, on all of our culture behaviours and how that's being demonstrated across. And those results go down to the supervisor level. So to your point, we're going to have data coming on supervisor effectiveness out of our performance development tool. We have an annual survey that tells us how teams are performing. You know, my suspicion is, as we get through year one, we're going to find a strong correlation between high-performing teams who feel engaged in culture and are enabled and empowered to demonstrate those behaviors and have supervisors that check in and coach frequently. And I guess, you know, if that hypothesis is proven, and I tend to agree with you that it possibly will, then the way you communicate those insights will hopefully help the the laggards, if there are laggards, there may not be any laggards, of course, to actually realise, okay, I actually doing this isn't just, I sh- isn't just the right thing to do by employees, it's actually the right thing to do by the business. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There are certainly those that doubt the correlation between frequent coaching discussions. I think academically everyone gets it, um, but staying disciplined to it is another thing. And so I think this will help build the rigor and discipline. And then along the way, we're pulse checking, not all the way down to the supervisor level, but you know, also once a year, um, we do a short survey and we check in with employees on the 12 behaviors right, that they've identified that we have the greatest gap to close. And then that goes to our executive team so that we can monitor results. And then we've also infused opportunities to pull checks through natural interaction points. So 
as we have company-wide town halls um, mm. or training sessions, we're building in those post-event surveys that we've always had about, you know, how was the experience and how was the learning and development, some related culture questions so that we can be pulsing on um, how we're doing along the way and creating that connective tissue so that, A, we're mindful as we're developing these events, we need to connect to culture because we're going to ask people about it following, and B, then we're getting a sense of moving the needle and making that connection with employees, like this is a culture-related activity. And of course, with the town halls, depending if how di- how digitized they they are for in, in AT and T, you've got that opportunity to potentially look at some of the passive data that's coming in at an aggregate level, some of the questions that are being asked, some of the comments that are being made, and feed all that in, I guess, as well. So, you know, there's a lot of data to uh, to bring together, isn't there, that can give you those insights that can ultimately drive that behaviour change and reinforce it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it identifies a couple of different populations for us. At first, you know. What we're noticing is that those that tend to engage in town hall and um, supplemental activities tend to score higher on culture questions and engagement. I don't think that that's surprising, right, because they've opted into these activities. But then that gives us a sense of who are the change agents that we can tap into to amplify change. And then also through detailed analysis of our annual surveys and other polls checkpoints, we get a feel for where are there, you know, communities or populations that we need to engage with differently, whether that's tenure-based or you know business unit-based. So do we have an opportunity with new hires and onboarding, or do we have an opportunity with more tenured employees so that we can target you know, solutions and communication directly within populations? Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you've that you faced from from both an individual and, and manager perspective with, with with moving to this different way of doing things yeah I see one of the, the largest things that we've had is as we moved to this uh, new performance mm-hmm. development process and tool is that feedback is transparent so when you give me feedback and if it's constructive you know my boss is seeing it at the same time and we have a culture of one of our strengths is being very very nice. We're an incredibly nice place to work, which has tons of benefits and is one of our key differentiators in the talent marketplace. You can come here and work with a great group of supportive colleagues. It's not a cutthroat world. A competitive group, but they're incredibly nice. What we've had to recondition and what we're in the process of addressing is nice is not kind. You can ask me for feedback and I can be incredibly nice and not share with you the one thing that you could have actually done better. And I can just go for the cop out of, don't change a thing. It's great. That doesn't help you. And so being nice is not kind. It doesn't further your development. And so we've got to shift the mindset to give constructive feedback is the kind thing to do. Yeah. It's truly helpful to your colleague. Letting them continue to stumble and not know why or not achieve the greatness that they could achieve is unkind. So shifting that mindset, and what that also takes around transparency, because we're so nice, we're very much worried, like, I mean, David's going to give me this constructive feedback, and my boss is going to see it right away. What's that mean for me? So there's been a, a great deal of concern about, should it be transparent? And, and we've held fast to, it should. And this won't become a deal unless we make it a deal. So What's equally important to giving that feedback 
is the supervisor's reaction to that feedback and how they use it. If the supervisor freaks out and makes it an uncomfortable moment, we'll absolutely train our employees not to give constructive feedback. It can't be punitive no. and it can't be an overreaction. Now, certainly if there's a theme of, you know, a feedback that needs to be addressed, that's one thing. But it's very important that as supervisors are getting that feedback and that we're equipping them to respond constructively so that we can train the workforce that this is a safe space and that psychological safety is really important to changing the culture. And it's interesting because you talked, you mentioned that actually the word kind candor, and I guess that's what it is. It's it's honest, but it's 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 framed in the right way. And and are you are you helping the workforce and supervisors with sort of training around that if they if they need that? And yeah, so we've got a series um, of development opportunities that right now we're targeting our general management population, which is you know our first level of executive leadership around candor and challenging uh, so that they're equipped to not only model this behavior, but accelerate it within their organization. So these are some of the things we're tackling, but holistically more broadly about that behavior and what it looks like demonstrated and also specifically within our processes and what that means and how they should engage. And uh, you know, shameless plug, um, and I have no connection between me and this author, um, but I don't know if you've read the book Radical Candor by Kim Scott, right, which is very much about challenge directly and care personally. And I think that that's an interesting framework to consider, um, you know, as folks think about how candor can be kind, right? It all depends on, you know, the place from which you come and the spirit in which it's intended and how it's presented um, versus, hey, you know, just be nice and say everything's good. Nothing can be done better here. With the transparency, I guess, comes questions around... Uh, privacy, ethics, all those sorts of things. How do you address that? those topics? Yeah, it's, well, so first, we're very transparent with employees about data governance, what we use their data for. And so for employee survey, for example, um, employee responses are confidential and um, not anonymous because behind the scenes, um, the HR organization uses them to do the deep dive analysis. Right. So at the front end of the survey is a global logon that helps us connect to, you know, the employee's response so that we can analyze things like you know, tenure, et cetera, and understand how we could engage different employee populations. And we're very candid with that up front. It's included in the survey um, prompts, et cetera. Yeah. And also with, you know, as we set forward with this new tool and this transparency that it creates up the chain, we're transparent about visibility within and, and, you know, there's optionality. If, you know, David, you want to give me feedback, but you don't want my supervisor to see it, even though we'd love to create this culture where that's okay, yeah. pick up the phone, right? This isn't your only method of communication with me. Yeah. And so I think number one rule is be transparent on how you use the data. And the second rule is then stick to exactly what you told employees, how you'd use it. And don't deviate. Because all of these tools have rich data, and you'll have other organizations that will want to tap into it. But if you share with employees, it will not be shared outside of HR, then you don't share it outside of HR. And the minute you do, then you can expect to impact your credibility and your results moving forward. You'll lose the trust and people yeah. won't, won't use the, the, the system. So, yeah, it's, uh, 
it's very uh, and as you said if you if you want to keep something confidential as you said pick up the phone have a conversation with someone so um yeah very good um so what i mean this has been a big shift and what are some of the outcomes that that you've achieved or are expecting to achieve with the new approach and and then hide how do you tie that back going right back to the start of our conversation how do you tie that back to the organizational objectives yes so what we hope to achieve is a more candid feedback driven organization that enables us to move faster so it's the primary pillar that we're trying to impact annual review cycles that only provide feedback once a year do not enable people to course correct and be agile and, and move at the speed in which we need to move to be competitive in the marketplace. Yeah. And we'll know if we're achieving this based on our business results. So we launched um, our culture model mid-year last year. We've seen strong business results the past three quarters. Um, I don't think that that's disconnected. Yeah, we've got business transformation activities going on. We've got culture transformation activities going on. They work hand in hand um, yeah. to accelerate the performance of this company. And bottom line, we, we've been clear in our articulation that culture is not about creating a feel-good environment. This isn't about all being happy when we come to work. This is about accelerating business performance. This is a business imperative. So we'll know if we're achieving it. Why are we continuing to accelerate business performance? And I guess the longer you do it, then you'll be able to actually test some of those hypotheses and see, um, you know, by bringing, you know, some of the business data together with, with the, the survey data, with the data coming uh, from the performance development system and, and, and other data sources as well together. You have a people analytics team, I know, within, within HR, I guess that helps you to do that. Right. Absolutely. So we're looking across. And then, to your point earlier, understanding where people then engage in behaviors and understanding, hey, we're actually seeing this in micro areas of the business, you know, accelerated performance with groups that tend to engage this way. And I think that continues to strengthen the business case. You know, also, no doubt, you know, we're early in this venture and we're going to have course corrections um, along the way as well. And I think another thing that I'd offer up for listeners thinking about embarking on this themselves is particularly on employee survey data, um, a challenge that we've had to overcome is you can get lost in data analysis, right? You can get paralyzed by it. So encouraging leaders to take immediate action on the things that are evident that need to change versus continuing to slice and dice and seek understanding, right? Act. It's the number one thing that you can do to ensure that employees feel that they are heard Act on what they tell you and don't overanalyze it. If they're telling you this system, this process, this behavior is a problem, it's a problem. Go address it. Don't seek, right, to, to, you know, go around the edges and find, you know, the rare problem. Go after the glaring one. And I think you start, that's the key thing with surveys. If you ask people for their opinion, act on what they're telling you and can tell them that you're acting on what they're, they're telling you as well. And then people don't mind completing surveys, are they, and, and stuff. So yeah. it's not rocket science, is it? <laughs> yeah, often you hear about survey fatigue. I don't think that people get fatigued on surveying. They get fatigued on inaction. Yeah, I'd agree with, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. Um, Melissa, we, we're coming to all... I, I was going to ask you to summarise some advice, and you just did it without me asking, which is fantastic. So that's uh, we've, we've got that tele, tele, telepathy going between us, I think, on this. Um, 
So if we move to the last question, you know, which we're asking everyone on this series, you know, uh, many companies have done away with their annual performance uh, management, uh, performance management cycle. We talked about that earlier in our conversation over the last few years, but we haven't seen a new consistent model replace it as quickly as everyone expected. You know, probably summarizing some of the, the things that you've mentioned in our conversation so far, how do you think companies should approach performance management in the future? Yeah, I think that it's, um, there's been a lot of quests to go find the perfect performance development model. My my theory is, after years of search, if none of us have found it, perfection does not exist. And I don't think it's going to be uniform across all businesses. Yeah. So I think you know, HR practitioners and companies need to look at, you know, what are their behaviors they're trying to instill? Where are they at in their company culture? What do they need to do? And I think that getting rid of processes in the name of simplification is a fool's errand. That you make it incredibly simple for the enterprise. You've made it incredibly simple for your supervisors. You have not made it incredibly simple for your employees who consistently, unless AT&T is an anomaly, say they want feedback, they want coaching, they want development. And we don't sit on the sidelines and expect sales just to occur without measurement or rigor we don't expect the employee experience to improve without measure. We don't expect the customer experience to improve without measure. Performance will not improve without measure. It, and even if you don't measure it, I think you're really measuring it behind the scenes. Like when yeah. we looked at models um, that don't put forward an annual rating, still feedback about overall contribution is being captured to inform things like talent development processes or compensation. You're capturing it, but you're not being transparent. I don't, that's, I don't know if it's the right answer, and I know it's certainly not the right answer for us. Yeah, and I think, as you said, I mean, you can learn from what others are doing, but ultimately you've got to apply anything like that to your own organization. And, and then, as you said, link it to where you're going as a business. What is the business strategy? What are we trying to achieve as a business? What are the outcomes we're trying to affect? Okay, and then what are the processes that we need from a people perspective to help drive that? And let's measure it. Yeah, yeah and I think, you know, what I said earlier, is you've got a, a company that's deeply steeped in feedback and candor, and it's particularly maybe the smaller organization where that organically happens great. Um, I think for many large companies, that's particularly challenging. Yeah. Well, Melissa, it's been wonderful to have you on the on the show, and particularly in your first week back in the office. For those of you that aren't watching the video, Melissa is sitting in an office in Dallas, in an AT&T office, which is great. Um, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and, and, and follow you on social media? Sure, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn and would welcome the opportunity to connect there. Great. Melissa, it's been fantastic to have you on the, on the show. Thanks very much for sharing uh, the, the great work you and the team are doing at AT&T. Thanks. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Stephen Bart, 
Chief People and Organisation Officer at Novartis on unbossing their culture and transforming performance management. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.